You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. So good to see you this morning. And uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name's Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. This is my friend Pauline, who's going to read our scripture for us in just a moment. So if you have a Bible, we're going to jump into it right away. You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll pick up in verse 21. Matthew 5, verse 21. And while you're turning there, um, I'll just mention we have been in a series over this last number of months working through what we believe to be the greatest sermon ever preached by the smartest person who ever lived. We've been working through Jesus' infamous Sermon on the Mount. We're stretched over a couple of chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus lays out this this beautiful vision for the Christian life. He describes what it looks like when the kingdom of God kind of grabs a hold of a person, when gospel culture begins to take root in our hearts and in our lives, and we become transformed day after day by the Spirit of God working and living through us. So so today we're going to look at a portion of that sermon, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Would you stand with us for the reading of God's word? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you that you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. You can take a seat. Just a super easy one this morning, hey? Thanks, Pauline, for reading that one. Um, I don't know if you've ever read George Orwell's book, 1984. I think a lot of us probably read it in high school growing up, but maybe that was many years ago. It's this dystopian social science kind of fiction novel that, that, he, that he wrote as this cautionary tale back in, I think it was 1949. And there's this one chapter, this one scene in the book that Orwell calls Two Minutes Hate. Essentially, the citizens of Oceania were required to watch propaganda about the enemy, and for two minutes every single day, they were to watch the screen about the enemy, and and they were told that they were to scream hate, pure hate at the screen. If you've ever seen the movie that was made a few years later, this is the scene that I'm talking about. If you remember the scene where there's like a theater full of people and they're all looking at this giant scream and they're yelling and they're cursing at the top of their lungs, wagging their fists in disdain. Orwell, the author, he wrote this, uh, this, this unpacking of that moment. He said, the horrible thing about Two Minutes Hate was not that one was obliged to act as part, but on the contrary, that is impossible to avoid joining in. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary 
a hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces in with a sledgehammer, seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current turning one even against one's will in this grimacing, screaming lunatic. And yet the rage that one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion, which could be switched from one object to another like the flame of a blowtorch. And so during two minutes hate, people would get so carried away with their rage, with this emotion of anger, that they would begin to lash out and even throw stuff at the screen as, as Julia does in the novel. And George Orwell, the, the author, he didn't invent two minutes hate. Similar propaganda was used in, in several different wars and around that time. But what was unique about Orwell's use of the concept in the book was his, the way that he partnered technology with it. The way that he utilized technology to manufacture anger and hate. The role that technology kind of played in spreading that hate. And while this was a, a fictional scenario that Orwell had designed, it almost had prophetic overtones. Because we have seen today that, that technology has done that exact thing in recent years. It's been a spreader of hate with social media posts and news cycles and the polarization of politics and opinions and cancel culture, we're surely but slowly but surely being taught to participate in our own two minutes hate, to choose a side and then to show like this ruthless contempt to anyone who doesn't agree with us. And the pandemic was especially bad for this. See, our phone screens, they've become this microcosm of two minutes hate, where things aren't presented in a fair, nuanced way, no, never. Instead, videos and news stories and articles are being crafted to evoke emotion and to rally a tribe. And as a result, anger is being cultivated one social media post at, at a time. Every reel, every tweet, every post, it's turning us into a certain kind of people. I say all that to say that anger and contempt is all around us. It's almost the water that we're swimming in especially in the last several years in the West, we are being conditioned to stand up for our opinion no matter the cost, to tear down anyone who thinks differently than us. And in many cases, the enemy, the object of our anger, it starts as some kind of like abstract idea or, or some ideology or even a political figure who's far, far away. But it can quickly move to someone close to us, whether that be a parent or a sister, a brother, a coworker whose thoughts do not align with my thoughts or my ideas on this issue or that issue. I don't know if you've seen this play out at all in the world that we're living in. Today's teaching text from Jesus, it speaks right to the heart of a culture like ours. He speaks right to a people who are filled with anger and contempt. And after sharing some sobering warnings, he lays out this better way to be human. This, this way that is, that is in sync with God and his kingdom, a way that enables humanity to actually thrive and flourish. And so I want to work through that text kind of section by section and, and see what it is that Jesus would want to say to us today. He opens that, that section, verse 21, it opens with a quote from the Old Testament. It's actually a quote from the Torah, from the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number six, you should not murder. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, quote, you shall not murder, end quote. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And so that first line is a verbatim quote, like copy and paste from Exodus chapter 20, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And then most scholars would, would, would say that that second half of the phrase is, is the sort of summary of the instructions that are sprinkled throughout the Torah about what should happen to a person who engages in manslaughter or murder, the, the, the taking of another life. 
And so Jesus, he's, he's pulling this quote from the Hebrew scripture, something that his listeners, they would have been super familiar with at that time. Like it's likely that the crowd that had gathered around that afternoon, we, they would have recognized those words as soon as they slipped out of Jesus' mouth. Like, oh yeah, we, we, we have heard that said before. And we totally agree. Maybe they're nodding in agreement. We, we, we totally agree. A murderer deserves judgment. And even reading those, those words two millennia later, I, I think it's instinctive for us to know that, no, don't murder. And if you murder, you'll be subject to judgment. Not only is that fair, but, but I think that's probably the one of the Ten Commandments that I can easily keep, right? Like coveting your neighbor's stuff, that's hard. <laughs> Idolatry, that can slip into any human heart, but, but, but murder, I feel like that's an easy one for us to just be like, check. <laughs> it's, it's something that, that most people don't accidentally stumble into. But then what Jesus is about to do here is he'll flip our understanding of this command on its head. And as we talked about last week, he'll round it out, he'll deepen it, and he'll show us what it looks like and, and what God was after with this all along. So after quoting the Ten Commandments, or the, the Sixth Command about murder and judgment that's due to a person who's committed this horrific act of murder, he says this, but I tell you, and when this is this word, but, but I tell you, these words are going to come up over this next few weeks as Jesus quotes a section of the law and then he deepens and rounds it out. He says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Okay, those are strong words. Like murder, I get. Yeah, but, but anger, someone who's angry is subject to judgment. It feels like Jesus is putting anger on the same category, the same playing field as, as murder. And to me, that feels extreme. Like, angry people are subject to judgment just like murderers are, and this is where Jesus begins to round out the law. He pulls this command, one that's probably pretty far removed for most of us, and it's probably something we're not likely to break, but he pulls it right into the center of our view, and he says, no, it wasn't only about the act of murder, that's the issue here, but it's the root of it all. It's, it's what's beneath the desire to murder. It's anger, and anger is something that we all deal with in some form or fashion, there's two main words that, uh, that the Old Testament uses to describe anger. You see these words come up in different places. They're Greek words. And uh, the first one is themos. And then the other word is this word called orge. Themos is, is described as this flame that comes up. You can think about it like if there's a, if there's a bunch of um, dried grass or hay or that sort of thing and it's lit on fire, it's like poof. And it's easily, it's easily kind of comes into play, but it also is easily extinguished. Um, maybe in common terms, that would be like when you stub your toe. You're like, gah! So it's this, this, this anger, or when you step on a piece of Lego. It's like, you know, right away there's a bit of anger, but it quickly goes away unless there's a bruise there, and that anger can live on just a little bit longer. But you get the idea. Themos is this quick, responsive anger, whereas orge, on the other hand, is defined as this anger that is long-lived. Dale Bruner, who's a New Testament scholar, he described orge as, as whoever is remaining angry or whoever is nursing a grudge. So it's not referring to, to just this moment of anger like themos, or even the emotion of anger. It's, it's living with anger. It's nursing it, stewing on it, reliving the situation over and over and over again. Thoughts of hate that come into your mind when you think about that person or that situation or what happened to you. That, that, that orge word, that second one, is the one that Jesus uses here in this text, the state of being angry. And I wanted to distinguish between those two words because anger isn't always bad. And Jesus isn't saying that, that to experience the emotion of anger is bad. Like he's not saying just bottle it up, push it down. 
There's actually a place for, for themos anger, absolutely. Jesus was angry on a number of different occasions. We see that happen throughout the New Testament. And we should be angry about certain things. You know, things like human trafficking or racism or poverty or oppression. When people are treated unjustly, that should bring us a sense of, you know, people have described as righteous anger. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about this, this other kind of anger, this stewing, this nursing a grudge, refusing to let something go and, 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 and refusing to let someone off the hook for what they did. And this is the, the distinction that Paul the Apostle is making when he says, be angry but don't sin. He's saying, don't let your themos anger turn into orge. Don't let your hurt turn into hate for another person. Jesus goes on in our teaching and he takes it even further. He shows us what that anger in our heart can actually do as it plays out in our lives and usually turns into an attitude of contempt. Verse 22. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, raka essentially means empty-headed or stupid. It's this harsh insult at a person's mind, their intellect, their, their, their intelligence. You fool comes from the word more, where we get the word moron. It can be translated as someone who, who lives an immoral life or who makes bad moral decisions. So, so you could say raka is a criticism of a person's head, where you fool is a criticism of their heart. And in both scenarios, what Jesus is getting at is a heart of contempt. This idea that I'm better than you. Where, where, where you almost talk down to a person, treating them as below you, you're insulting them, usually by means, a means of propping yourself up or positioning yourself as, as being in the place of power or the higher ground. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you show contempt towards a person, you might not be using a knife or a gun to take their life, but your words can be like poison. Your tongue can be this aggressive weapon and can do violence to a person's soul. And I don't know if you've ever experienced words like that. I have. There are words that have been said over me or about me throughout my life that have had a very damaging effect on my life. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's words that have been said that even developed insecurities in me that I still deal with and wrestle with today, have, have made me question my call at certain times, have left deep emotional wounds. There's even things that were said decades ago that I'm still unpacking with my therapist today. Words have this incredible power to build up, but they also have this power to completely tear down. In Proverbs 18.21, it says it like this, the tongue has the power of life, and death. And that's why that, that little children's nursery rhyme that kids used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That phrase never made sense to me. Because even as a kid, I remember hearing those words and like, no, like words actually do hurt me. Sometimes way more than sticks or stones. Our words, they have this power to build up, this beautiful, we have this ability to build others up, to make people believe things that, about themselves that, that maybe they, they didn't even believe on their own or didn't see within themselves. Our words can also tear down, can kill. Anger starts in our heart with a grudge or whatever it may be, but as it works its way out through harsh words or condescending tones or body language, it moves towards this contempt. There's been several studies that have been done about contempt and, and the, the place it plays in relationships. Um, and, and most studies would say that, that it's a primary contributor. Others would say it's the primary contributor of relational breakdown, especially in marriage. 
There's a guy named Dr. Gottman. He was a, he's a world-renowned psychologist and clinical counselor. He's done a ton of research and lab study on marriage and divorce. And anyways, he, he was, he's able to predict whether a couple is going to stay together or, or move towards divorce within five minutes of being around them. It's quite crazy. And they say he predicts with 94% accuracy. And, and whether or not that's true, I, I'm not sure. But, but what he is looking for in those moments when he's predicting is this attitude of contempt. It's a killer of relationships. And sometimes it comes out in condescending tones towards the other person. Sometimes it's disengaged body language when a person's talking, stonewalling a person, not responding when they talk. It's unfair criticism. But contempt, it, it's so serious to God because when we treat a person as lesser than, when we speak about them as worthless, we're actually defacing the image of God in that person. When we use our words to tear down the reputation of a person or, or to tear down their self-worth, when we pick at their insecurities or we make harsh statements about them, you're not only offending the person, but you're actually offending God, the one who made them. Bonhoeffer, he said, anger is an assault on God and the other person. In other words, God takes our anger towards others very personally. And being a dad, I get that. You know, I am fiercely protective of my girls. Like, do not mess with Kinsley or Harper. And uh, I can only imagine that, that God feels that same sort of protectiveness towards us, towards his children. There's this deep connection between our relationship with others, how we treat other people, and our relationship with, with God. John Mark Comer said it like this, that our relationship with God is wrapped up in our relationship with others. There's this other scripture in the New Testament that says it like this, that those who say they love God but hate their brothers or sisters, they're liars. He says it can't be done. We can't be in right relationship with God and at the same time hate a person who's made in his image. The way we love, or even the way we fail to love, is this tell-all about our love for God. But I find it that it's so easy to compartmentalize our lives to have anger brewing in our heart towards a person, a friend, a relative, a spouse, maybe an ex or a coworker, a boss, and maybe even justified anger, but to have this anger brewing towards a person and then treat my relationship with God as something completely separate. We can treat a person in our lives like absolute crap with our words and our attitudes, the things we say to their face, and oftentimes the things we say behind their backs, contempt and slander. But then we can go to church and it's easy to, to be, just begin to raise our hands and do all the religious things. And, and, and all the while, God is saying, no, before you come and do this, no, more important to me than your songs or your sacrifices, he would say, is it more than, than all these things you do is your relationship with your brother, is your relationship with that friend that you have tension with, with that person that you absolutely shredded on Facebook, like really laid into them in a fit of rage and it wasn't fair. And you haven't had the courage to come and to apologize. If you want to make things right with me, it actually starts there, with being right with, with others. Our relationship with God is absolutely wrapped up in our relationship with others. And Jesus continues to point this out in, in our text in Matthew chapter 5. He, he lays out two examples of what to do when we find ourselves at odds with a brother or sister. He gives a more spiritual example. And then he gives a more secular example, kind of a churchy one and then a rest of life example. And here's the summary in both. His call is to radical reconciliation. Look at verse 23. He says, therefore, or you could say, in light of everything that I've said about anger and contempt and what it does to your heart, 
He says, if you're offering a gift at the altar and, and there you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and, and reconcile to them and then come and offer your gift. Okay, here's what we need to know about what Jesus is saying here in this example. He's using hyperbole to make his point. Like he's almost being a little bit funny with the people that are surrounded there because see, the altar that Jesus is talking about is in Jerusalem. And as Jesus is teaching these words, he's sitting on the side of a mountain by the Sea of Galilee. And so those two places would be about 100 kilometers from each other. And the picture Jesus is giving here is he's saying, okay, after you've walked 100 kilometers from the Sea of Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, and then you're at the temple, you're giving your, your, your sacrifice to the Lord, you're worshiping, and in that moment you remember, oh no, I'm at odds with a brother or a sister back home. He says, you should turn around, you should travel 100 kilometers all the way back and, and reconcile with that person and only then turn back around, walk another 100 kilometers and come back to the temple. That is a lot of time and a lot of walking. That's 400 kilometers collectively as you make the trip back and forth. To give it local kind of a local picture, think of it as going from here, walking from Coquitlam, from CA Church, to Hope, B.C., I Googled it, and it's just in around 100 kilometers, just over from here to Hope. It's roughly a 24-hour walk. That's an entire day. Some of you runners are like, oh, no, 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 I could do that way faster than that. (laughs) 10 hours flat. Whatever the case is, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using this exaggerated example to make his point. He's underlining and re-underlining how important reconciliation is to God. He's saying it's this important important enough that you would leave your sacrifice, that you would make this big, long trip home, reconcile with that person that you've wronged or that's wronged you, and then and only then come back and make your sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, reconciliation is going to take a lot of time, and it's going to take a lot of work, and it's probably going to be incredibly inconvenient. It's going to cost us something. He'd say it's so so important to God. Jesus says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Can I make those words a little more personal to us today? I think Jesus is saying that he cares more about our heart and being in relate, the, the relationship that we're in with other people. He cares more about that than that thing that feels so important that we do at church, whether it's serving on the hospitality team or the worship team, that he would even care more about that than preaching and what I'm doing right now, that my relationship with other people is more important to God than even what I could bring him as a means of offering. Okay, Jesus' first example is is about being at odds with, with a brother or sister, a close friend, someone that we deeply love. And if you've ever been in a, in, a, in a fractured relationship with someone you love, then you know how incredibly painful that is. He says you need to go and to make things right. But then he even takes it a step further. And he, and he talks about what we should do when we're at odds with our enemy. Look at verse 25. He says, says settle matters quickly when you're with your adversary who is talk, taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. And your adversary, your adversary, sorry, I keep saying that word wrong. Your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, he says, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So not only is it important for us to be reconciled with a close friend, but also to be reconciled with an enemy. And here's what Jesus is saying in this, this section, in this example. He's saying, do it quickly. Don't wait. 
If you allow it to fester, it's only gonna get worse. And so if it's possible, don't even let the issue go to court. Jesus is saying, deal with it as, as, as quickly as you can, long before it ever gets escalated to that point. Take the place of humility and just own what you need to own. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased those verses. He said, say you're out on a street and an old enemy accounts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things, make things right with him. And I don't know about you, but I find making the first move can be so incredibly hard. You know, thinking back to situations where, where, where I've experienced conflict and hurt, it's so easy to let pride creep into my heart and to rob me of reconciliation. Thinking things like, you know, I'm not saying sorry till he says sorry. <laughs> like, yes, I had a part to play in this, but he had a way bigger part to play in this. So I'm open to forgiveness, but it's only gonna happen if he comes to me and he confesses and he, he does all these things. And, and Jesus says, no, just say that you're sorry. Just own your part, own whatever you can own. Don't let this thing go on and on and on. Reconcile, make things right. Jesus says, if, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even in jail. And this talk of jail that Jesus uses here, it's referring to debt jail. It's something that, that we're not very familiar with in the, in the modern age, at least not in the West. But here's how it worked in the first century. If you owed someone some money, you would be locked up. Essentially, you would become a slave uh, you'd be working off your debt, your loved ones would be working off your debt, and you wouldn't be released from prison until your debt had been paid in full. And as I was thinking about this, this text and, and processing this over this last week, I was thinking, you know, we don't have debt prison anymore. Most of us aren't at risk of, of literally going to jail because of a debt that we you know, owe another person. That's just not our story, that's not our context. And yet, fractured relationships and, and anger towards a person hurt from the past has left so many of us in a sort of prison, like a prison of the mind, a mental and an emotional prison. Anger can absolutely hold us hostage. And we just keep reliving and reliving the moment and thinking about it and stewing on it. You know, it can do this sort of violence to our souls. I don't know if anyone can relate, if anyone's experienced that kind of prison of the mind. But so many times we can just be torturing ourselves as we think and stew and just refuse to let it go. I also think that sometimes our anger, we, we, it, it can cause us to put other people in a sort of prison where we just won't let them forget what they did to us. Where because of our heart, we have this ongoing contempt towards him or to her. And maybe it comes out in snide remarks. Or maybe it's that we ghosted them, that we stopped talking to them, or we stonewalled them. It maybe comes out in literal shouting in rage. And you know what? Maybe they deserve every bit of it. Maybe your anger is completely justified. But the call of Jesus, and he is so crystal clear in this text and other places throughout the New Testament, that his call for his people is to radical reconciliation, forgiving the dead, letting them out of prison, so to speak, he says that his followers will be known for this countercultural approach to conflict. That in a world that, that, that tells us that we should fight for our own agenda, that we should stand up for ourselves, because who else is going to do that? That if someone makes a mistake, that we should cut them out, that we should cancel. Jesus says, no, we're to be ministers of reconciliation. People who make the first move, who say sorry when we've wronged another, and who are willing to walk from hope to coquitlam to hope again in order to repair a relationship that's fractured. Why? Like, why should we live in this way? 
because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He laid down his life for us so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. Scripture says that while we were still enemies of God because of our sin, Jesus came for us and he gave us what we didn't deserve. He did the costly thing that led to his death on the cross. He saved us. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that Jesus reconciled us to himself and then he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. See, the call of Jesus is to care so much more about being in right relationship, or if we're going to throw back to the Beatitudes, being in right relatedness, than we care about being right. To be a church of people who are so focused on unity, being unified, even though we're so different, who rather than nursing a grudge, do whatever we can to live at peace with all people, going to them and apologizing and making things right. And hey, listen, I know that this is tough stuff. And I don't know what this teaching from Jesus requires of you. You know, I do know that there are people in this room that have gone through some very difficult circumstances who've been deeply wounded by others. And my prayer this morning is that Jesus would come to you by his spirit in a still small voice and would bring healing, would speak to you today would put his finger on exactly what it is that you need to do as an agent of reconciliation. What step is he asking you to do today? You know, in a moment, I want to move into a time of prayer. But before we do that, there's, there's a few things that might be important to say before we, before we pray together. The first one is this. There are some situations where reconciliation is not actually possible. You know, if you're a victim of abuse it's probably not very smart to try to get into a room with your abuser. It's probably not smart to go to them and try to make things right. If you find yourself in that place this morning, being a victim of abuse, maybe the call for you is to just acknowledge that maybe you've carried some anger towards that person along with you. Bring that before the Lord and do the costly work of forgiveness. Not because they deserve it, but because it will set you free. Or, or maybe it's not even that. Maybe if, if that's where you're at, maybe it's even coming to the Lord and saying, would you even give me a desire to forgive? Because I'm not even there yet. Hey, there, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And there is times where reconciliation isn't possible. That being said, in most cases, in most relationships, reconciliation is possible. And if we're at odds with a person and, we're, and we are able to go to them and make things right, we should that's the call of Jesus. You know, this week as I, I was preparing this talk, I was, I was asking God to show me where in my life do I need to live into this text? Where do I need to reconcile with others? And he placed several different people, several different situations in my mind, in my heart. And I'm processing those right now, and I'm in the process of following up with, with a few different people. In one case, I'm going to write a letter because that feels like the best way to get my thoughts and these things out. There's this other person on Friday I was working on my message, and in my inbox there was a bing of a new message, and I opened it. And it was this, this friend that I haven't seen in a couple of years, but something happened a few years ago. We kind of went our separate ways, and we haven't talked. I haven't even thought of him in several years. But he sent me this email on Friday, <laughs> and he said, uh, hey, I would love to get together with you, Sam, and, and reconcile our relationship. I was like, Lord, you couldn't have been more clear <laughs> about what you're calling me to do. So I want to pray. If you're comfortable, would you close your eyes with me all across this room as we just create a space 
to be present with the Lord. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your great sacrifice for us. That you did the costly thing. That you came and you reconciled us to yourself. That you made a way for us, even though we didn't deserve it. Now, Lord, in the quietness of this moment, I, I, I want to ask that, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. That you'd bring to mind people and situations that need our attention this morning. And that where we need to be agents of reconciliation. You know, I would, I would imagine there's some people in this room that as soon as I started talking about anger... <laughs> As soon as we started this discussion, there was someone whose face popped into your mind or a name. Maybe you've been processing and contemplating as I've been talking up here. I just asked the question, Lord, what would this, what would this teaching from you require of me in this specific situation, this specific person? I know it's nuanced. What does it require of me? Maybe there's others today who somebody didn't initially pop into your mind. Maybe say, no, I think I'm okay on this one. And if that's the case, if that's truly the case, that's fantastic. But would you just for a moment sit in this quietness and just say, Lord, is there anything under the surface? Is there a relationship that I need to be made right with, a person I need to be made right with? Just lay that before you. It's going to take a couple of moments of quietness. You say, come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. You can open your eyes if you want. My, my sense is that there's more that the Lord would want to do in this area of our hearts and lives. That there's more to kind of surrender to him. And so we're going to take a few moments to, to worship together, to sing, and John and the team will lead us as we lift our voices and respond in song. But I also want to ask our prayer team in this response time to come up and, and to kind of lay out some, uh, or to come up and, and stand here at the altar. And if you're at a place where you say, hey, I would like to pray with someone about this, but what's going on in my heart. I want to bring this before the Lord, and I'd really value the opportunity to stand with a brother or sister. Um, I would encourage you to come up. I realize that that can be so awkward, especially when we're talking about anger and contempt and, and these kinds of things. Um, but for me, in, in 2020, in a moment kind of similar to this, um, I was in a place where I was nursing a grudge towards a person. There's a childhood friend uh, some, some stuff had happened and, and it left me with questions about why and every single day that year I was thinking about it and thinking about it and I couldn't stop and it just kept coming up in my mind and it was, I, was, I was in this prison of the mind. And in a moment kind of like this, I came up and I prayed with a few people and, uh, and God set me free. You know, the situation still sucked. It was still a brutal situation and there's still hurt. But it, he set me free from this, this place of just this nursing and this ongoing kind of prison that I was in. And so if you're in that place, if you would value praying with someone, I would urge you, come up. We would love to partner with you in, in that. Well, why don't you stand to your feet?
and we'll sing together. There'll be some prayer people up at the front that would love to pray with you. Maybe you actually just want to take a moment of quietness before the Lord and, and say, Lord, what does this require of me? What does living out radical reconciliation look like in my life? Let's just lay that before the Lord and see what he might want to do this morning. Okay, let's sing together. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.